everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Thrive Infertility Podcast. I'm super excited that you have chosen to share this little corner of your week with me and this sacred space that I just love to be at with you, even though it's one-sided. And like I always say, I wish you were on my couch sharing a cup of coffee with me or a glass of wine. Let's just be honest. It's Monday morning, but I'm happy to get ready on that or get started with a glass of wine already. You guys, if you have been part of the infertility community for any amount of time and spend any time on social media, you know, my guest, and she is a fount of knowledge and just a beautiful, beautiful soul and, um, a creative space and an informative space in the world of infertility, I have with me today, Dr. Laura Shaheen, a reproductive endocrinologist out in Seattle. Laura, thanks for being here. Hey, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here and wonderful to connect with you again. I love, Laura and I were just talking kind of off. Like I love when our paths connect because it feels a little just, just sweet to be back in her presence and everything that she's doing good in this world and all the information she's putting out there. It's just so valuable. Um, Laura, if people don't know you yet, because they need to go just follow her right now, pause this and go follow her. Um, (laughs) who are you? Where are you? What do you do? Tell us about you. Great. So I am Dr. Laura Shaheen. Please call me Laura. I am a double board certified OBGYN and reproductive endocrinologist, way too much education, practicing at Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle. And I have um, clinical faculty appointment at the University of Washington. I um, am dedicated to educating and shattering stigma around fertility and miscarriage issues. And I will do it any way I can. I have written books. I've uh, participated in many clinical trials. I love speaking. I um, am host of my own fertility podcast, Baby Your Best podcast, which is which so are, great. But your episode is amazing. Go listen oh. to the episode with Kathy all about adoption. It was incredible listening to your story. So I am just, you know, I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I just want to educate where people are. So I'm happy to be here today and have this discussion with you. Of all the places you guys, if you're listening to this out in social media world, people go to Dr. Google a lot of times and they're on mom blogs and opinion blogs or whatever. If you follow Laura, you're going to get real like doctor stuff on Google, not Dr. Google, which is so many people sit on my couch. I'm sure they come into you, Laura, as, as a patient and are just like, well, I read this on Google. It must be true. Mm -mm. Check your sources, check your sources. And today you guys, what I want Laura to help us with today is if you are in the fertility treatment realm, there are some of it that is like, uh, kind of like a roadmap. Here is what we're going to do to get you pregnant based on your diagnosis. Here's the treatment plan that we see is best for you, but there's also some menu items that you can pick from. And today, what I want to do is talk about these menu items in a way that help you not go to Dr. Google, but go to Dr. Shaheen here and just be able to hear like, okay, I'm not just hearing mom blogger say an opinion about the ERA, for example. Today, we're going to ask Laura and she's going to tell us what an ERA is, why it would be necessary, maybe some, maybe some holes in the ERA that you might be hearing about at other places, but let's just get to the medical truth about fertility treatments and not the roadmap because 
uh, Laura's not our doctor today and fertility <laughs> treatment, you know, roadmaps are so deeply individualized. My twin sister and I, which I don't have one, I don't even have a uterus. So this, you know, it doesn't even apply, but <laughs> if she was our doctor trying to get my twin sister and I pregnant, we're going to have two totally different treatment plans because we're going to have different partners and different, you know, biological makeups. And, uh, so we're not going to touch that, but what we're going to talk about today is those menu items that you might pick from, or be able to have an opinion on whether or not you want to pay for it. Laura, are you ready? Let's ready. Do Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Let's start with the ERA first. What is it? What are the benefits? Why would it be recommended? Great. So ERA is endometrial receptivity assay. And that term came from the company that designed the test, iGenomics. There are others that are coming onto the market, but ERA is specifically to iGenomics. And it is an attempt to test the endometrial lining, the lining of the uterus, to make sure that it is receptive to the embryo so that you can increase the chances of implantation and increase the chances that you're going to get pregnant with your embryo transfer. And so at first blush, or especially when you read, you know, the iGenomics website on ERA, it sounds amazing. And that makes sense. They're very proud of their product and they're trying to sell it to you. But just like anything with infertility and miscarriage, there is no black and white. There's a lot of gray. And so we're at a point in fertility care where our success rates are the highest they've ever been. It's incredible. We can test embryos and we can test the uterine lining, um, and, but it's not a hundred percent. And so what we can test for in embryos are maybe chromosome balance. Um, and so you think to yourself, well, if I do chromosomal screening on the embryos, you know, I've done everything I can with technology to, to test them. Well, when we're doing the embryo transfer, we're just really looking with an ultrasound. We're maybe checking my estrogen levels, but like, is it really going to work? And the process of doing an endometrial receptivity assay requires going through a kind of a mock frozen embryo transfer cycle. So in our clinic, it's estrogen, medication, progesterone. And then on the day that you would normally get an embryo transfer, you don't. You get a biopsy or a sampling of the uterine lining. And that tissue is sent off to iGenomics to be tested. And you get information back that says your lining is receptive or it's not receptive. And if it's not receptive, they give you recommendations. Like you need 12 more hours of progesterone or a day less of progesterone. Um, but you don't get a transfer that cycle. You stop your medications, get a period, and then start that cycle all over again. And about four to six weeks later, you get your actual transfer with recommendations. So there's so much more to it than that, but, and, and I'm happy to go into it, but it does increase your time to pregnancy. It increases cost. The biopsy is fine. I mean, I, I do endometrial biopsies on people, but it's pretty crampy, you know? Mm. So you have to really think through, do I need this test, this intervention, because it's increasing time, cost, and you know, it is an intervention. And so it's really important to have a thorough discussion with your provider. Who, what type of diagnosis is this really the best for? 
the evidence supports that the people who are going to benefit the most from this testing are people who have tried embryo transfers, at least two transfers, and it has not been successful. So they've okay. done an embryo transfer. It didn't work. They just tried again because your second transfer, you are changing things. It's a different embryo, mm-hmm. a different lining, but you still didn't get pregnant. You think to yourself, okay, what could be the reason I'm not getting pregnant? It could be that the progesterone timing is off. Yep. So it's important to realize, you know, we've been doing embryo transfers for over 40 years and we do know a lot. We know a lot about timing. We know that if we put an embryo in two days after starting progesterone, someone's not going to get pregnant. If we put it in 10 days after starting progesterone, someone's not going to get pregnant. There is a window of implantation and it's on the sixth day of progesterone exposure where the genes and proteins that need to be there will be there to allow the embryo and the uterine lining to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. So it is important and it's amazing. And, you know, iGenomics has over 30,000 samples to kind of come up with this window. And that's how they can say, oh, I'm looking at your tissue and your tissue actually looks like someone who's only seen progesterone for five days. Therefore, you need another day of progesterone in order to get your lining to a window of implantation. The, the, and so that, that is great. And there are times where it can be really helpful. Like if someone's not successful, but I don't think everyone needs to do this test before they do an embryo transfer. And I think that's, what's really important. Why wouldn't somebody need this? Um, because most of the time someone's uterus is going to be receptive without this extra time cost and intervention. Okay. So every single patient's personal situation dictates the path. And it is a joint discussion between the provider and the patient. Like you said, there's a menu, or I sort of say, I've got certain tools in my toolbox. And I'm very honest when I say, you know, the evidence supports you've never done an embryo transfer. You do not need to do an endometrial receptivity assay. I want you to understand it. I want you to learn about it because you know what, the first thing you do, if we do that transfer and it's a negative pregnancy test, the first thing you're going to find on Dr. Google is this test. And you're going to say, why didn't we talk about it? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's better to have that conversation beforehand rather than sort of say, oh, I really didn't think that you need it. It's like, okay, it needs to be a mutual discussion. But if there's somebody sitting in front of me that's done three egg retrievals, Hmm. yet one embryo, I'm going to talk to them and I say, gosh, you know, the the evidence really doesn't support that you need this. There's a 90% chance that when we do our typical frozen embryo transfer protocol, your lining is going to be receptive, but it is one piece of the puzzle that could help us make sure it's something to talk about. Now hearing about this, Laura, this is such good information, but what I'm wondering is what does the research say that this actually helps somebody get pregnant? Let's say I've done two frozen embryo transfers. It hasn't worked yet. Is, is this ERA worth it for me? Um, it's funny. You only find that out if you do it. So again, the evidence says if you've done, if you failed two transfers, you know, before you do that third transfer, this is a evaluation, a tool, a menu item that mm-hmm. might help with intervention. If you do the test and you find out you're receptive, mm-hmm. 
with the timing that you already did with the first two transfers, you're like, great. Um, that yeah. was a waste of time, but at least I know. And I, and I don't, and now I'm like, okay, and go into my third transfer, even though I'm not changing anything. I know that, you know, I, I didn't need to change anything. And then if you do the test and you find out, wow, you need 12 more hours of progesterone, you're going to say, I'm so glad that I can make this adjustment before mm-hmm. going into that third transfer. You know, I hear I, uh, Dr. Bailey at fertility associates of Memphis has been on here before I've spoken with her before. And something she always says is a no to a patient is still data for the provider. And so even if, you know, I, I have, uh, my clients sit with me. Um, if your people don't know me, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I, they will be maybe at the end of their fertility journey and saying like, nothing is working. And my thing is what at the end of your journey, can you look back and say, I did everything I needed to do. Your everything is different from the next person's from the next person. But how much data do you need to collect before you either transition into like another retrieval or maybe a donor material or maybe adoption, or maybe you're going to elect childlessness after this journey, whatever that is, what data points do you need to make this decision? And even like you're saying, even a no, even if it feels like another no, in my world, that's another trauma, right? But it helps you know as a provider, it helps the patient know whenever they have to wrap this up and try and put a bow on this journey. A, I did everything. And for you, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're doing it right, right? The no for us is still data point for you as the provider. What else I'm hearing about this ERA is it's deeply personal, case by case, something that is decided on between patient and provider. So something that we cannot go and say, everybody with endometriosis needs this. Everybody with adenomyosis, this isn't good for. It's a conversation between patient and provider where you say, here's the recommendations based on what we have already tried and what maybe hasn't, has already not worked in your case. Fact? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, there's such a balance between educating the patient, talking about the tools that are in front of the the patient and the doctor are a team and kind of Mm -hmm. deciding together. I think where the conflict comes in is where patients feel like decisions are being made without education and they're feeling that they're being told to do something Mm. without choice or without the tools that help them make them decide. So The New York Times article that came out about the ERA within the last couple of months was very sort of anti, you know, the evidence supports that not everyone needs to do this, but there's certain IVF doctors out there that are, you know, doing all these add-on tests Mm -hmm. and add-on treatments in order to fill their pockets with Mm -hmm. money at the patient's cost of time and more emotional Um, turmoil with dragging out this already long process. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had a flood of patients asking, just reading the, you know, first couple of paragraphs of that article, it's like, oh, well, 
you know, why, why are we even doing this? Why are you even offering mm-hmm. this saying it's an awful test? It's not an awful test. It is a tool in your toolbox that you should talk to about with patients and come with a decision together as a team, mm-hmm. not just tell every patient, oh, you know, you have to do every test under the sun before yep. you do an embryo transfer. Let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. Very good. Let's talk about PGT testing. What is it? What are the benefits? Yes. So basically it is the process of testing embryos for genetic information before you get pregnant. And it requires taking an embryo. So a fertilized egg biopsying cells away from that embryo, freezing the embryo, shipping the cells to a specialty lab to get genetic information back. The vast, there's different types of genetic information that you can test for. The vast majority of people who are doing PGT pre-implantation genetic testing are doing it for aneuploidy. So they call it PGTA, and that means chromosome balance. So every time an egg and sperm come together, there's either a match of chromosomes or there's an imbalance. If you have an extra chromosome, you're missing one, big portions of information is lost. Sometimes people are doing PGTM or testing for certain mutations and genetic material that could lead to very specific disease like Mm -hmm. cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, sickle cell disease, Mm -hmm. neurofibromatosis, just many, many, many different types of mutations that cause disease um, to decrease the risk of the child having that disease. And then another one is called PGT-SR or structural um, rearrangement, which is in the cases of a lot of my patients that have recurrent miscarriage from balanced translocations, which is um, the material in one of the parents is rearranged so that no material is lost. That person is a healthy adult, but some of their gametes, whether it's eggs or sperm, are going to be missing DNA. And so you can decrease the chances of another miscarriage by finding embryos that don't have structural rearrangements. Mm -hmm. So in general, it is biopsying embryos for genetic information, but many different types of genetic things can be tested. Mm -hmm. So when we look at first trimester miscarriage, we're looking at placement in the uterus, placement of the embryo in the body. Um, And we're looking at uh, chromosomal issues, correct? Yes. Um, I mean, I, the most common cause of first trimester miscarriage is a chromosome imbalance in the embryo. Mm -hmm. And so, um, every pregnancy is a new opportunity. So even if someone's had miscarriages from chromosomal issues, just trying again Mm -hmm. could result in a healthy baby, but people do have the option of screening embryos before they get pregnant. And so that would be the point of this PGT testing, right? Yes. I think of chromosomal screening of embryos as an embryo selection tool. Not every embryo that looks beautiful under the microscope is going to have the right chromosome content to implant and become a live birth. And so you can use it if someone has, you know, 10 embryos, depending on that person's age, not all of them are going to be perfect. And so by selecting for an embryo that has the balanced chromosome content, you could decrease the time for someone for having a live birth success with fewer embryo transfers, 
but by no means does everyone need to do genetic testing on their embryos. Just like the ERA, it is a, it should be a thorough discussion and it should never be, hi, welcome to IVF. You automatically do chromosomal screening. Mm -hmm. You should talk about why your doctor recommends it because it's not perfect. Laura, you made a comment about, you know, the selection of the, the embryo looking at DNA, looking at how they look under a microscope. Talk to me about the pros and cons, because I think that sometimes, you know, a parent selecting their child out of a Petri dish can have a, you know, a, a, let's talk about the polarity of emotions that different ears might hear that. Right. And so talk to me about the pros and cons of this. Absolutely. So it's like, I'm talking to a patient, right? Like you are in front of me, we're thinking about all different family building options mm -hmm. for whatever reason, we have all the tools in our toolbox and we've decided mm -hmm. IVF is the next step. And yeah. so when you're thinking about IVF, there's certain things that you think of, like, how am I going to fertilize the eggs or, you know, um, and oh, by the way, are we going to do chromosomal screening on the embryos? So let's talk about that. I explain it. And then I say, let's talk about some pros and cons. So, um, you know, I say, I sort of say to people, you, know, sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes people are doing IVF because they're not having any problems getting pregnant They Every time they get pregnant, they have a miscarriage and we test it and it's chromosomally abnormal. So they are doing IVF specifically for chromosomal screening yeah. so that they can decrease their risk of another miscarriage, the emotional trauma, the physical recovery, another DNC. You know, so for that couple, that makes a lot of sense to do chromosomal screening because that's kind of the whole reason they're doing IVF. Yeah. Um, other times that I think about it a lot are when the couple is doing IVF in their late 30s and kind of early 40s. So as eggs and sperm age, fewer of them are able to go through all the genetic work that they need to in order to come together at fertilization and make an embryo with balanced chromosomes. So we've kind of known since we started doing IVF that as especially eggs, so I, I don't want to laser focus, sperm is a huge part of this, but eggs, when we're born, they're frozen in a genetic state. They literally have their two copies of the chromosomes. And when we ovulate, whether we're 20 or 40, those chromosomes have to split apart and then come along and fertilize with the sperm that's just kind of made every single day and just is made ready to go once one chromosome, right? Mm -hmm. When you have an embryo with chromosome abnormalities, 97% of the time it's an egg issue. So I, we do kind of focus on the eggs, but it's not intentional. It's just mm. physiology and biology. So since the beginning of IVF, we've known that especially as the person who has eggs, the female partner ages, you have to transfer more and more embryos and an embryo transfer to have success. So before we had chromosomal screening, I used to transfer five or six embryos in my patients that were 40, and we'd still be so excited if we had one baby. But one of the reasons IVF had such a bad reputation is you kept having twins and triplets. We kept transferring mm -hmm. way too many embryos. And so we have found that by screening embryos beforehand and finding embryos that have the highest chance of success, we don't have to transfer more than one mm. embryo more. So it can actually decrease the risk of a pregnancy. It can, especially if someone, you know, has, is age 40 and there's 10 embryos, honestly, 80 to 90% of the, those embryos are going to be chromosomally abnormal. 
And so by testing them, you can find the two or three embryos that are mm-hmm. chromosomally abnormal. And that person can have a 70% chance of live birth with their first embryo transfer. They don't have to go through five embryo transfers and two miscarriages yeah. to finally find the embryo that's successful. So it is a way to increase the efficiency of the process, decrease complications mm-hmm. and decrease multiple gestations. Um, so, so that can be really beneficial, but for someone who's doing IVF at, you know, 25 and because their fallopian tubes are blocked and they have 10 embryos and probably eight of those are going to be just fine. Do we need to do the chromosomal screening? Probably nope. not. So even though you could sort of say that there are these people that have really strong indications for it, I still say it is not a perfect test and it's something to think about. It is definitely, um, you know, putting the embryos through more than they would, whether you transferred them fresh or, or just froze them because you are biopsying cells. Um, the testing is not perfect. 2% of the time, it can be wrong. Like maybe, you know, if you think about it, we're only testing a, about five to 10 cells away from an embryo that's about 100 cells. Mm. The, the embryo, like imagine like a ball of M&Ms, the embryo has about 100 M&Ms and we're testing about five to 10 of the M&Ms on the outside. Mm. And guess what? When we're testing, we're not even testing fetal cells. This mm. ball of cells or ball of m M&M is actually just starting to separate into two clumps of cells the inner cell mass that'll eventually be the fetus and the trophectoderm, which is surrounding it, that'll eventually be the placenta. And when we're doing the biopsying, we're biopsying cells from the trophectoderm or the outside. And you really are assuming that the cells that we're testing on the outside of the embryo will represent all the rest of the cells of the embryo, even including the fetal cells. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you can get you know, even confusing answers like mosaic embryo. Oh yeah. Pull it that thread. What does that mean? Yeah. So when you get a result from a a PGT tested embryo, there's three things it could say all the cells are normal, all the cells are abnormal, or you get a mix. And so meaning mosaic. So think about a mosaic tile on your bathroom. Some of the tiles are blue and some of the tiles are green. So some of the cells are normal and some of the cells are abnormal. And so then you say to yourself, well, what's going on with the rest of the embryo? It could be that the whole rest of the embryo, the cells are normal, or it could be the whole rest of the embryo, the cells are abnormal. And so we, what we do is we have a genetic counselor in our practice at Pacific Northwest Fertility that um, talks to each patient with a mosaic embryo and kind of goes through exactly what that means and the data that we know on it. And there are times that people do transfer a mosaic embryo with the education that has a lower chance of success and a higher chance of miscarriage. Um, but the babies that are born after a transfer of mosaic embryo, it's just that the rest of the cells were okay. And that's hard, you know, infertility is gray enough. So we're looking for certainty, just like you're looking for the right, you know, prenatal vitamin to take or the right supplements, the right diet. You want some sort of certainty. So you want this test, this chromosomal screening of your embryo to be black and white and to be right or wrong. And you want this test to make sure you have a healthy baby 
right? And it is just not that. I know we want it to be that, but it's just not that. And so when people first start to learn about it, just like the ERA, they're like, oh, great. This test is going to tell me that my, my uterus is receptive or not. Oh, wait, it's just talking about the timing of progesterone. Gosh. Oh, this Genetic testing on embryos is going to tell me black and white, whether I have a healthy embryo. Nope. It can't test for every single gene and, and all the embryos. And you sometimes get mixed results like a mosaic embryo. So just like everything in infertility, I wish for my patients, it was more black and white, but that is why it takes education and a thorough discussion with your doctor. And a part of that discussion can be a very important part of the discussion should be an ethical discussion. Mm -hmm. And I ask my patients, like, one thing is if you're testing these embryos, we do not transfer abnormal embryos. So if we get the result that the embryo, all the cells tested abnormal, we do not transfer those embryos because we worry about harm. You know, that is such a high chance of miscarriage. If we transfer that embryo, are we just causing this person who's getting pregnant harm? Um, and so if that makes you uncomfortable, don't do the test. We've been doing IVF for 40 plus years without doing chromosomal screening. Just because mm -hmm. it's available, it doesn't mean that you have to do it. And it is okay to not do the testing and transfer embryos, realizing, okay, it might take me more transfers or, oh, it does have a lower success rate. The test itself doesn't make the embryos better. Hmm. It's just doing a little bit more controlling variables and doing a little bit of selection beforehand so that when you do do that transfer, it's a higher chance of success. But um, it is it is not for everyone. And it's a really important discussion to have with your doctor. That was so helpful, Laura. The, the pros and the cons, the information about why. I understand why it's such a, it's such a weighty decision for a patient to make. Right. Because not only do I want to get pregnant yesterday, I wanted my baby yesterday. Right. And so this decision, as with the ERA, it, it prolongs the process of bringing baby home. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it can help increase your, your chances of one gestation of one embryo so that you can have embryos for a subsequent pregnancy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's also so deeply personal, so deeply personal that, you know, Very something like, polarizing. you right. know, even in the field, like there's knockdown drag out discussions in medical right. conferences about everyone should do an ERA. No one should do an ERA. Everyone should do chromosomal screening in the embryos. No one should do it. And the right answer is somewhere in the middle with a discussion with the patient and a lot of education. I mean, I am not going to be around on the, on this planet when IVF turns a hundred, <laughs> um, but I look forward to seeing how this continues to progress. I mean, I remind my, my clients all the time, as I've heard you say, IVF is 40 years old. Yes, we've done a lot, but IVF is only 40 years old, right? Totally. Like that's how old I am. And I'm still trying to figure out how to adult. Okay. <laughs> like. <laughs> IVF is still trying to figure out how to adult. <laughs> yes. Can we put that on a shirt, please? That's great. So I just am excited for like our grandchildren. God forbid they ever need IVF. But if they do, the advancements that are going to be made um, are just, you know, 
I mean, I just think of my phone. I just looked at it and I have an iPhone something. And my first phone was a flip phone that did nothing Mm -hmm. besides take grainy pictures and call my mom. So (laughs) anyways, that's great. Let me, if, if it's okay, um, I hear sometimes people doing multiple retrieval cycles and people not knowing, should that be me or should that not be me? Talk to me about why somebody, why you would encourage a patient to do multiple retrieval cycles and who it's not good for. Absolutely. Um, it all depends on the patient's personal situation and their family goals. So if someone is doing IVF and creating embryos as a form of fertility preservation, and they know that they are not going to get pregnant for a number of years, whether it's the setting of a cancer diagnosis or before a big surgery for endometriosis, or just personally not ready to conceive, the more eggs they have frozen or the more embryos they have frozen, the better chance of building the family of their their personal goals in the future, because you never know if something is going to be successful until you go to use them. And so, um, I have patients who are doing egg freezing. Um, it's not perfect. There's great egg freezing calculators online where you can plug in your age and the number of eggs that you have frozen and you can see, Oh, well, as I age, as my eggs age, I need more and more eggs frozen in order to have a higher chance of live birth. And even more, if I want to have two kids and with embryos, you know, in general, the data shows you want to have two to three euploid or chromosomally balanced tested embryos for every one live birth. And that comes from, even if the embryo has been tested, we're never at a hundred percent success. And so, um, of course there are people out there that have two embryos frozen, whether they're tested or not, but who have two embryos frozen that have two babies, but I've been doing this for over 15 years. And most of the time people do not have two babies with two embryos. So it is really a very detailed discussion with the provider. And also don't forget about limitations that are outside of our control, whether it's financial limitations, like maybe somebody truly cannot do more than one egg retrieval or ethical limitations. And not, not that that's a limit. That sounds like a negative term, but just sort of like, I'm, I'm not willing to make more embryos than I'm willing to use in the future. And so therefore I know when to stop or how many eggs to fertilize. Um, and what about limitations of ovarian reserve? Like there are people out there that would love to have 20 eggs frozen, but they have a very low egg count or low AMH and they might only get five eggs with one egg retrieval. And they just cannot imagine doing four or five egg retrievals to meet that goal of 20 eggs. So, um, yes, just like everything that we've talked about. So personal. No black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I really appreciate having this discussion because I just, I know that there are so many people out there thinking about doing fertility treatment in the middle of fertility treatment, having decisions in front of them and feeling conflicted, like reading everywhere that all of their friends did chromosomal screening, but they feel conflicted about it because they're nervous about 
the results or whether it's right for them and and not even feeling the power to question their doctor like you have to know that there are different ways of looking at things and it's okay to have your personal values. Of course, they should come into your decisions. But I just hope that for all the people out there that are feeling conflicted and like, like that's okay. Like people online can be very dogmatic. Like you have to do an ERA or you have to do chromosomal screening or you have to eat pineapple in the two week wait or it's not, you know, Right. Because and I think it's coming from a great place. I think that hopefully people are out there really trying to give advice because they feel like it's going to be helpful. But when you're the person who's trying to make that decision, really black and white, hardcore recommendations are just not helpful. They can be even more confusing. And I think, Laura, what I hear so often is I feel bad asking my doctor they're busy. I feel bad as taking up their time. There's this like white coat phenomenon that doctors don't take this the wrong way. You're a fantastic human being, but where they're like some more like evolved, brilliant, important human being that like we as patients are hiring doctors to help us. Right. Mm-hmm. And you as the patient have every right in this arrangement, give me a give me a yes here. I was more in the Bible belt. So I was going to say, give me an amen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. But you have every right as a patient to sit there and say, I have questions. If I'm going to move forward with you as my provider, let me ask every single one of my questions. She's bobbleheading to me (laughs) so that I am comfortable with you as my provider so that you can help me make a baby so that I feel confident and educated. Not that like, I hear so often, I felt bad asking my doctor. So I went to the blogosphere. No, not a good place. That is not a good doctor for you. I'm hitting that, you know, over the head today, a bunch, but go and sit with your provider. If you don't feel comfortable asking your provider, can I say, get a new provider, fly to Seattle and see Laura. (laughs) No, it's true. This is, you are exactly right. I start every patient consult with, um, there's certain things that I want to talk about today, whether it's your test results or what options are available to you. But before we start talking, what do you want to talk about? What are your goals for the visit? And, um, and a lot of my patients that really are advocating for the care, they have a huge long list. And I'm like, I'm not sure we're going to get, get to everything, but will you please read me that list? Because very often it's like a lot of little things that I can answer in just a couple of sentences. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I know all of those things, you know, the visits like 25 minutes, right. But take five minutes at the beginning and be like, okay, these are the really important things I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then I'm honest with them. I'm like, you know what we have until one 30, if we don't get to everything, we'll do another visit. Right. So just like in the beginning of the consult. And so, you know, the doctor patient relationship is very much of a power dynamic. Right. And so if you have a doctor that like walks in and is just like, okay, so, you know, do, 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 you know, and they are just driving the consult, it's okay to say, Hey, can you just, can you just pause for a second? I just want to let you know, my top three questions for today are this, I really want to listen to you and what you have to say but like their agenda might be 
totally different. They might just be assuming that you want to do IVF because, you know, for whatever in their head. And you might say, look, I know you're going in that direction, but I really want to make sure that we talk about my nutrition or, you know, the supplements yep. I'm taking. And um, so I just think it's, you have to advocate for your care. And if you are getting pushback or made ridiculed, made to feel silly or um, not listened to, absolutely find another doctor because um, this doctor patient relationship is not a one-time thing. This is usually a marathon and it's something that's ongoing. So if it's starting off that way, where you're just feeling like they're going to be telling you what to do without listening to your goals, mm -hmm. um, that's a big red flag. Yeah. But I also know on the flip side, it's, it's easier said than done. Cause I've been a patient and, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes access to care is really hard and there just aren't other providers out there. So sometimes you don't have a choice, but you can still vocalize your opinion and you, you can come to an agreement together about what you feel comfortable doing in your care. Yep. If you are listening to this and thinking I have an upcoming appointment with um, an REI and I don't know what to ask, we have a free resources page on our website with questions to ask your fertility doctor on a new patient visit just to help you uh, maybe start writing down some questions um, that you can go in and essentially interview this person to see if they're the best person to help you get pregnant. Largely a really personal thing. Um, but since we're taking it out of you and your partner, um, or, you know, for whatever reason, bringing in, in care, um, you need to feel safe, emotionally safe, physically safe and, and heard in this arrangement. Laura, let's work on landing this plane today. I want to kind of give you on, I'm surprising you by saying this, what is something that if, you know, speak to all the people that prospective patients that could come into your office, what is something you want them to know? as a provider, as uh, somebody who's going to be, I mean, I hear so often, like, I wish I could be best friends with my provider. They're great. We've logged a lot of miles together. I adore them. They've been really great. What is something that you just would want to speak into the story of these people that are listening like they're a patient of yours? Pay attention to your mental health and your emotional well-being. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you would like that. <laughs> it's true because um, it is a marathon. There's so much of this process that is like, hurry up and wait. And there's a lot of space in there. And um, you need those stress management tools. You need that emotional support to make it through the process in relatively one piece. And, mm. um, and it just, I, I think that it just cannot be overemphasized and whatever that is right for you. There's nothing like one-on-one -on -one therapy that can be really hard for people, but just self-care, emotional wellness is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And and therapy doesn't mean that you're broken. Therapy doesn't mean you have a diagnosis or that you're the negative C word crazy. It doesn't mean that, right? Mm -hmm. It just means like, Hey, I have so many people that come in for a new patient visit and are, and I'm like, what are your goals? If in six months, something's different in your life, like, obviously I can't get you pregnant, but what do you want to be different? And a lot of them, their goal is I don't have anybody else to talk to. I just need you to be my person. 
And my answer, I'm here for all of it. I will be your person. I'm in it to win it with you. I'm your biggest cheerleader. I'm your sister from another mister. Like whatever you need me to be, I will be for you because this can be hard and lonely and insert like negative emotion here. There are so many losses that are going to accumulate for you. And it's not just pregnancy losses, but yes, you do need that person in the corner because, and even taking it past conception, the stages after infertility in your life are going to be pregnancy, postpartum, and parenthood. Mm -hmm. Yes, I make those different because postpartum is really different than parenthood. But if your mental health is compromised from infertility, now this is becoming a podcast about me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But bring it. I'm going to preach now. But what's, what's next is really difficult times where your hormones are going to be overactive, where you're going to be exhausted, where you're going to be in pain. Yes, you're going to be getting what you want, but postpartum depression and anxiety after infertility are higher. And so we need to care for our mental health in the middle of reproduction, whether it's like ART or just trying to conceive on your own, whatever, so that you are prepared for, uh, pregnancy, postpartum and parenthood. And let me just plug, if you are in the middle Tennessee area, Tennessee at large, or I guess anywhere for some of our zoom classes, we're starting a bringing home baby class, Laura, Mm. um, that is all about like think birth class, but think how do I preserve my mental health? in when I bring the baby home, decreasing the goals of like increasing intimacy with your partner, figuring out how to like juggle demands of parenthood, but also like you know, partner, what do you do when, uh, your wife says, I don't like my baby. I wish we had never done this. And you know, I'm not happy with my life. Who do you call when postpartum depression, anxiety kicks in? So that's the whole idea. You can visit us on Tennessee reproductive therapy slash, is it backslash slash? I don't really know. I'm whatever (laughs) bringing home baby, um, to register for that. But Laura, you also have some fun announcements coming up. And while we get ready to wrap this up, I want you to tell everybody, like, how do they follow you? Where do they find you on the interwebs? And what is some fun things coming up in your life? Thank you. Well, I just roll, please. I very much appreciate being here today and connecting with you. You are doing so much good in this world. And I'm so proud to be a little part of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me basically on any social media platform, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, at Dr. Laura Shaheen, at, you know, Dr. L-O-R-A-S-H-A-H-I-N-E. Um, I have written several books on fertility and miscarriage, and I was just telling you, Kathy, this Whoa! is the place that I'm announcing it. I'm almost ready to publish my second edition of Not Broken. It was um, a labor of love published in 2017, all about first trimester miscarriage and recurrent miscarriage. And so much has changed in the last five years that a second edition is absolutely needed. And so that will be coming out soon. You can find it at Amazon. Um, And I am enjoying my baby or bust podcast. So you are an incredible guest. Mm -hmm. Um, New episodes come out every Wednesday. You can listen to it anywhere you listen to podcasts, just interviewing incredible people like you about different stories and learning and sharing all together through this crazy thing called fertility journey. So thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you for being here. You guys, seriously, if you're anywhere in the middle of infertility, go follow her. Um, 
Yeah, it's great. I have a couple copies of Not Broken that I, I have like a Laura Shaheen library here that um, I either point people to Amazon or let people borrow it because it is, it is really good as somebody who did infertility and uh, recurrent first trimester loss. Um, it is nice to have somebody who feels like they get you. And so, uh, check that out when it comes out. Do you know when do we have a time frame ish? It'll be, um, late spring, early summer, 2022. It's coming. Oh my gosh. That, I mean, it feels like summer here. I don't know about there. <laughs> um, so look for it. Um, I'll be sure to post it in our Insta story, Tennessee reproductive therapy. When I see that it is out in the universe for us, Laura, thank you for being here. You are thank just a you. gift to this world and just women and their healthcare and their mental health. Thanks for being an advocate of the mental health of women, especially those going through this season of infertility and loss guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of thrive Infertility. I hope that you have an excellent week. See you next week and go out and thrive. Bye y'all.